Hello and welcome to Bible 101. We're going to do yet another lesson in our Apostolic Apologetics course. I'm making up for lost time here. And we're going to go to the book of Proverbs, chapter number 30. And we're going to discuss verse number 4. Some Trinitarians will point to Proverbs 30 and 4 as evidence of the doctrine of the Trinity. But let's read it. What's it really saying here? Alright, we're going to actually read Proverbs 30, verses 1 through 4, to get the context. The words of Agur, the son of Jakey, even the prophecy, the man spake unto Ithiel, even unto Ithiel and you call. Surely I am more brutish than any man, and have not the understanding of a man. I neither learn wisdom, nor have the knowledge of the holy. Who hath descended up into heaven, or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. Trinitarians will point to this verse of scripture as proof for a pre-existent son. What do I mean by that? They will say that Jesus eternally existed as the Son of God. So we have the Father, and we also have the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit, and they're co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal. This is very, very important for the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is one of the verses of Scripture that they'll point to as evidence of a pre-existent Son. Now, this is really a stretch here, uh, because the Old Testament, you have to really try to read between the lines to find a pre-existent Son. Because over and over and over again, especially in the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter number 43, 44, 45, somewhere around there, you'll find many references to God saying, I created the heavens alone, I spread about the earth by myself. Uh, and then over and over and over you'll find that the Bible says, Hath not one God created us? And of course, Deuteronomy 6 and 4, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And so it's obvious all throughout the Old Testament that there's only one God. And so they have to really try to seek for certain passages to find out, uh, you know, where is this pre-existent Son? we got to prove our doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament. So we got to prove that the Son is eternal. Where is this pre-existent Son? And so they'll look real close at some of these passages here. And sometimes they'll point to differentiations. For instance, if it says, the Lord God and His Spirit. And they'll say, see there, and His Spirit. That separates God from His Spirit. And that is a strange of course, but this passage they often point to, and they'll say, see, it says, what is his name, and what is his son's name? So they say, see, he's talking about God, so he's got the name of God, and what is the name of God's son, if thou canst tell? However, you must read this in context. Once again, a text without a context is a pretext. So that's why I had us read verses 1 through 4. Now, when he says in verse number 4, Who hath descended up into heaven or descended? This is what's known as a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. The answer to this question, Who hath descended up into heaven or descended? None but God. Alright? Next question. Who hath gathered the wind in his fist? The answer once again, None but God. Who hath bound the waters in a garment? The answer again, None but God. Who hath established all the ends of the earth? Answer again, none but God. What is his name? In other words, if there's somebody else that 
has uh, ascended up into heaven or descended, if there's anybody else who has gathered the wind in his fist, if there's anybody else that uh, has bound the waters in a garment, if there's anybody else that has established all the ends of the earth, what is his name? And what is his son's name, if you can tell? So, really, this is just what is known as rhetorical questions, and he asks, and the answer is, none but God, none but God, none but God. What is his name? If you can find anybody else that's done these things, give us his name, and give us his son's name, if you can tell. So this doesn't prove the doctrine of the Trinity at all. It's very, very simple. And really, I can wrap this up very, very quickly. All throughout your Old Testament, you're going to find that it tells us over and over and over again that there's only one God. Indivisible. You can't split him into two. You can't split him into three. You can't split him into four. But what you must understand is that God has different manifestations. He has different ways that he reveals himself. For instance, another passage that some Trinitarians will point to, perhaps that really haven't looked into the details, is in the book of Genesis. Since we covered the other one so quick, I'm going to go ahead and answer another one that we read about. In the book of Genesis, the Bible tells us about the incident of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, there are three men that appeared to Abraham. And the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham that which I am about to do? And, and Abraham pleads with God. And it's a beautiful passage of Scripture. But some Trinitarians that don't, in all honesty, really know what they're talking about will point to this and say, See, there's evidence of the Trinity. You've got three men here. You've got Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Well, here's the problem. Three men come. But Abraham only pled his case before one. If they're co-equal and co-eternal, why did he only plead his case before one of them? Point number two. It's very clear that two of them are angels, because just look in the next chapter. Two angels come to Sodom and Gomorrah. Is that a coincidence? No. It's the same two angels that came with God. So how did God appear as a man? That's just, this is what's known as a theophany, a temporary manifestation of God. It's very possible that this is the same thing that appeared to Jacob when he wrestled with the angel and he said, I've seen God face to face. I'm also reminded of the story of Manoah and what happened there when the angel came. He was afraid because he said, we have seen God. We're, we're going to die. We, we, we've seen and uh also, I remember uh, Moses in the passage of the burning bush, how he turned his face away because he was afraid to look on God. This is what's called a theophany, a temporary manifestation of God. Is God a man? No. Is God a flaming bush of fire? No. Uh, is God an angel that wrestled with Jacob? No, but this is known as a, a theophany, a way that God manifested himself unto them. Okay, let's discuss one more since we still got some time here. And I'm knocking a lot of these out pretty quickly. But if you go over to the book of Daniel, we're told the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the firing furnace. The firing furnace. Now, if you've ever uh, gone to Sunday school for any length of time, or in, perhaps you know, you've read the Bible, uh, or you just picked up storybooks about the Bible and read them, you're probably familiar with the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow before the idol. 
that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so Nebuchadnezzar takes them and he throws them in the fiery furnace. Uh, and he says, who can rescue you? Let's see if your God can rescue you. You know, kind of mocking them. And so the Bible says that they saw a fourth man in the fire. And he said, he looks like the Son of God. Okay? And so some people will say, see there? There's the pre-existent Son in the fire. Nebuchadnezzar even said, he's the Son of God. Okay, but if you look very, very closely, actually what Nebuchadnezzar is saying, and some translations even reflect this, is he says, and the fourth man looks like the son of the gods. Plural. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is an idolater. He believes in many different gods. So when he says he looks like the son of the gods, he's not saying, oh look, there's Jesus, the pre-existent son in the fiery furnace. He didn't have a clue about Jesus, obviously. He didn't have a clue about uh, angels or anything like that. He didn't really know what he was seeing. He was doing his best to describe it. And he said he looks like a son of the gods. He doesn't look normal. He doesn't look natural. He looks supernatural, in other words. He looks like a son of the gods. So that's what it means. So when some people try to point to that and say, see, there's the pre-existent sun and the fiery furnace. I remember a debate I heard years ago where a Trinitarian tried to bring this passage out and say, see there, that proves a pre-existent sun. But that's, that's just a poor excuse to try to back up your doctrine there. Because if you look into what it says, many translations actually translate that he looks like a son of the gods, plural. And I do. I am aware that uh, in some translations it says son of God. But the appropriate translation should be son of the gods, because Nebuchadnezzar didn't know what he was seeing. So over and over and over again, we see that it's really a stretch to try to find a pre-existent son in the Old Testament. I've discussed some of these passages uh, already. And we're going to go ahead and discuss one more since I have a little bit of time left. I'm going to talk about the book of Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 18. And this is another passage that they'll talk to because of the pluralism here. And if you go to the book of uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 18, now I have discussed this a little bit before in a previous lesson, but uh, God simply speaks as he's about to make man and he says, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. And they'll say, see here? God speaks in the plural. So obviously, this proves Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Uh, I had one man bring this up in a Bible study I was teaching. He said, see there, uh, who else could he be talking to? If, if he's not talking to the Son, who else is he talking to? Well, you kind of have an issue here, okay? Because God, they'll point often to the word God in the Old Testament. and They say, well, God, when it says God, it means Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is speaking. Okay, well, then who's the one speaking here? Let us make man in our image. Is that the Father speaking? Is that the Son speaking? Is that the Holy Spirit speaking? Is that all three of them speaking? Well, if it's all three of them speaking, who are they speaking to? Uh, so, really, that doesn't fix anything. But then, who is he talking to? Okay, let me give you several different views, several different possibilities. This could be known as the plural of majesty. For instance... Let's just say the Queen of England steps up and she says, uh, We greet you. Now, it's really just the Queen of England speaking. She's saying, I greet you. But she says it in the majestic plural. We greet you. And so some people point to this and they say, Well, this is nothing more than just the majestic plural. Okay, some would argue this point. Let me give you another option. 
he says, let us make man in our image. This is called the plural of deliberation. So the first was the majestic plural. Could be that. Could also be the plural of deliberation. Let us make man. Have you ever sat down and say, let's see what we can do here? What are you saying? Let us see what we are doing here. Okay? You're one person. And yet, that's called the plural of deliberation for you to say, let's see what we can do here. All right? And here's another option. Uh, there's also the option of him speaking to the angels. When he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, he's including the angels in on what he's doing. Doesn't mean he's saying, all right, angels, let me get your opinion on how I ought to do this. But he's announcing to the angels, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, and uh, just for proof that God does speak uh, to the courts of heaven, you can uh, read in the book of Isaiah, chapter number 6, uh, and it says, The Lord speaks to Isaiah. Now, when Isaiah, he sees, he, he goes into the temple, and he's praying, and he sees a vision, and uh, long story short, he sees angels uh, flying back and forth, and they have six wings, and they cover, uh, you know, with two of those wings, they cover their face, with two of those wings, they cover their feet, with two of those wings, they're flying, and they're crying one to another, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his glory, and uh, the voice, uh, the, the post, the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and then he said, I heard a voice saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? All right, whom shall I send? Notice this. He says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who's the us here? The courts of heaven. All right, for more proof, you can go into the book of, I believe it is First uh, Kings, where a prophet by the name of Micaiah comes in and prophesies before King Ahab. And if you're not familiar with these stories, you will be later on in the Bible 101 series. We're going to go through some of these stories. But uh, the prophet Micaiah comes in and he prophesies before King Ahab. And he tells Ahab, go up, you know, go to battle, and you'll prosper. And Ahab knows he's lying to him. And he says, how many times have I got to tell you to tell me the truth? What has the Lord told you? And he said, the Lord told me that he was going to put a lying spirit in the mouth of all your prophets. And this is the way it happened. Uh, the courts of heaven were, were up there, and I saw God and uh, speaking to them, and, and God was saying, what shall I do? How can I deceive Ahab to go into battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And one spirit said this, and another spirit said that. Finally, a spirit stepped forward and said, I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, do it. You will succeed. And so this tells us that God sometimes includes the angels in on some of the heavenly decisions. So this isn't really a problem. So again, it could be that God was speaking to the angels. And then some say that he was speaking in prophecy. And I'm not going to get into that because that can be very, very complicated and I don't want to confuse anybody. But it could be the plural of majesty. It could be the plural of deliberation. It could be God speaking to the angels. It does not have to be a trinity. This does not tell us anywhere that the Father was speaking to the Son. Nowhere in Scripture, not in the Old Testament and not in the New Testament, does it reveal to us that in Genesis 1 and 18, the Father was speaking to the Son when he said, let us make man in our image. Okay, it could have been him talking to the angels, could have been the plural majesty, the plural of deliberation. It does not have to be the Father speaking to the Son. All right, we've covered many issues here. We've covered 
Proverbs chapter 30 and verse number 4. We just got through covering Genesis 1.18. We've covered the fourth man in the fire. So hopefully I've covered enough material here today to help you out uh, and to help you to understand that the pre-existent son doctrine is nowhere found in the Old Testament. Now, what does this mean? Because you might say, well, what about John 1 and 1? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same as in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Okay. What Trinitarians want this to say is, in the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father. But you can't translate it that way. Watch this. If we did, here's how it would read. In the beginning was the Son, And the Son was with the Father. And the Son was the Father. You see what I mean? You can't read it that way. Why did he say word instead of son? There's an important reason why. Word is the Greek word logos. Some uh, uh, pronounce it logos. Logos, and it simply means thought, plan, concept, idea. It can mean literally spoken word. Okay, everything that God created in the beginning, it was with his word. God said, let there be light. There was light. God said, uh, you know, do this. God said, do that. And it happened. Just like he said, everything he created, he created with his word. John 1 and 1 is a parallel passage of Genesis 1 and 1. That's why I said, in the beginning. You read the book of Genesis, in the beginning. God created the heaven and the earth. Read John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. There's a lot to that passage and it can get really, really deep, and I'm not going to get into all of it. But I'll simply say this. Was Jesus in the mind of God? Absolutely. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it tells us he was slain from the foundation of the world. Now stop. How could Jesus be slain from the foundation of the world? The answer, in the mind of God. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, it says, He calleth those things that shall be as though they were. So God calls things that will be in the future as if they had already happened. Because in God's mind, He has a bird's eye view of time. He stands in eternity and sees time from a bird's eye perspective, if you will. And so God looks down and he sees past, present, and future totally different than what we see it. We live in the here and now. We see yesterday only in the past as a memory. But God sees yesterday, today, uh, and, and uh, eternity. And, you know, From the eternal perspective, he sees the future, he sees the past, he sees the present. He sees it all from that bird's eye view, if you will, again. I'm, I'm just trying to help illustrate this in your mind a little bit. And so God has a plan. And God can call those things that shall be as though they already were, because he already knows what's going to happen. And so, uh, time is something that was created for our benefit, but it's not really for God's benefit. God can operate outside of time. We can't even comprehend eternity. Eternity is impossible for us to comprehend, but God can comprehend it. So, uh, hopefully I've answered some of your questions here. John 1 and 1 does not teach a pre-existent son in flesh, but it does teach a plan in the mind of God. That's why once again in Genesis 3.15, uh, when God spoke to the serpent, he said, uh, the seed of the woman will crush your head, you'll bruise his heel. How could God say that in prophecy? Because, once again, he had that bird's eye view of time. How could God say that it would come from the seed of the woman? How could God say it would be of a virgin? 
How could God say it would be of the seed of Abraham? It would be of the seed of David because he had that bird's eye view of time and he can see everything even before it happens and he can call those things that shall be as though they already were. So hopefully some of these uh, points that I've made here today will help you. May God bless you. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Bible 101. I'm actually driving right now, so you'll probably hear a little bit of road noise in the background. But I had something on my mind and I thought I'd share it with you here today. I want to talk about something called the right hand of God. And this is often used by Trinitarians, specifically in the passage of Stephen's vision in Acts chapter number 7. In context, for those of you that are not familiar with it, Stephen is being stoned and in the process of being stoned and in dying he looks up and he says I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God and they'll say see here you've got God and then you've got Jesus standing at his right hand so that's clearly two persons once again I would respond but the same way I res responded in the baptism of Jesus by saying God is not a person He's a spirit. You don't have two persons here. So, what did Stephen see? Well, I can tell you this. Stephen did not see God in a visible form. The Bible says in John 1.18, No man hath seen God at any time. There's no exceptions to that rule. It also says the same thing in 1 John. No man has seen God at any time. And so, it's very clear that Stephen did not see God. No man can see God and live. You can read that when Moses asked God uh, to show him his glory. God responded by saying, no man can see me and live. But he said, you can see my hinder parts. Many men believe that's when he saw the history of Genesis. But uh, I want to talk about specifically what does it mean that Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Well, first of all, let me build a case. The right hand of God is what's called an anthropomorphism, and that's a big word to simply mean it's a way that we describe God in human terms. God is indescribable, and so the only way we can comprehend God is simply by attempting to explain Him in human terms. For instance, you talk about God's right hand or God's left hand. Uh, you talk about uh, God blowing with his nostrils. You talk about God breathing with the breath of his mouth. 
there's all these references in Scripture that talk about these things, but does God have a literal mouth or a literal right hand or a literal left hand? Or uh, In one place he says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Does that mean the earth is literally the place upon which God sets his feet? No. These are anthropomorphisms. They're a way to explain God in human terms. But that does not mean that God uh, literally has his feet resting upon the earth, or that God literally delivers only by his right hand. What about the rest of his body? And so the right hand of God is actually an expression that speaks about several different things. Number one, it represents the right hand of power. In the book of Mark, and I don't have the Bible in front of me, but I believe it's chapter number 15 in the passage where Jesus is standing by, uh, before the high priest being tried before his crucifixion. Uh, he's being tried and he says, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Now, this is interesting. He doesn't say the right hand of God. He says the right hand of power. The right hand of power would have been familiar with the high priest. This was what's called a circumlocution. And what that means is uh, it was a way for them to speak about God without saying his name. The Jews so revered the name of God and they feared mispronouncing it so much that if they came across the uh, name of God in Scripture, Yahweh, they would not pronounce it as Yahweh, but they would pronounce something called a circumlocution, which would be uh, something in the place of Yahweh. Many times they would say Adonai. Uh, many times they would say something else. And one of those was the right hand of power. So that's the reason why the high priest tore his clothes, because he understood that Jesus is saying that he'd be standing or sitting at the right hand of power, in other words, the right hand of God. But notice what he said there. He said the right hand of power. So that tells us that the right hand represents God's power. But that's not all it represents, because this is kind of a stock answer that uh, a lot of apostolics will give, but they can't really explain what the right hand of power is. What does it mean? Okay, uh, many times in Scripture it talks about God delivered by His right hand. What does that mean? Uh, right hand was basically representing power, but also authority, also favor. And so, let me give you an example in Scripture. Uh, if you go to the book of Genesis, and you look at the story of the birth of Benjamin, the birth of Benjamin to Jacob, uh, Rachel gives birth to Benjamin, and in the process of giving birth to Benjamin, she dies. And uh, she calls him Ben-Onai, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob, once Rachel was dead, he corrected the name and said, No, I don't want him to be known as son of my sorrow. I will call him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Now, notice what he said, son of my right hand. What does this mean? Basically what he's saying is, this is my right hand boy. Uh, what do you say, let me just use this illustration and just say, uh, I've got a friend and he's like my right hand man. Uh, what I mean is, he's an extension of me. I mean that uh, he can do things for me that maybe I can't do, or he makes my job easier. Uh, in, for instance, let's, let's say a manager says, that is my right-hand employee. What does he mean by that? He means that he's an extension of the manager. He probably thinks like the manager. He probably can do things that the manager would normally do, but doesn't have the capability of doing. And so, uh, 
That's what that would mean is uh, by saying that he's my right-hand man. He's my extension. Okay, now there's a scripture that says uh, the Lord sought for an intercessor and couldn't find one. And it said, so his own uh, arm brought salvation. Now what does that mean? God sought for somebody to intercede. Now, we've talked about this before. To intercede on behalf of another uh, means basically you're pleading the case for somebody else. And so uh, God sought for an intercessor. He sought for somebody that would, uh, would intercede on his behalf. Uh, in order to bring, if you will, uh, peace between him and his people because his people had gone astray. They had turned away from him and so he sought for an intercessor. But he couldn't find one. Nobody could be found to be the intercessor. And so his own arm brought salvation. Now let me go back to the previous point I made about the being called the right hand of somebody would mean that you're an extension of them. So God uh, brought salvation by his own arm, i.e. by an extension of himself. Now this is powerful. I want you to really think about this for a minute. Put on your thinking cap, they used to say in school, because we're going to move somewhere quickly in this. Okay, uh, so this is what John 1.18 says. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Another translation says, he hath made him known. How was God made known? Through Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be in the bosom of the Father? Again, another anthropomorphism. It just simply means in closest relationship to the Father. He has made him known. Okay, so... Uh, God sought for an intercessor, couldn't find one. So his own arm brought salvation. So he overshadowed a virgin by the name of Mary. And by the seed of the Spirit, Jesus was born. Jesus was born by the seed of the Spirit in the womb of a woman. What does this mean? It means he was fully God and he was fully man. As God, uh, he was able to heal the sick, he was able to raise the dead, he was able to feed 5,000 with just five loaves and two small fish. As God, he was able to uh, speak to the wind and the waves and say, peace be still, and they were calmed and, and there was peace. Uh, as God, he was able to do all of these miraculous things. Uh, in fact, the, the, the Bible tells us that once he died, he was raised up by the Spirit of the Father. God, in other words, by the Spirit of the Father, God. Uh, but in his flesh, he couldn't do anything. He said, I can do nothing of myself. The Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the work. So the flesh didn't have power in and of itself. Remember, that's the part, born in the womb of the woman. Uh, so the flesh had no power in and of itself. In fact, he said, I speak nothing of myself. So the flesh didn't have any power in and of itself. It was only by the Spirit of the Father that he could do the miracles and raise the dead and heal the sick. Okay, uh, but God cannot die. It's impossible for God to die. God is a spirit. God, by his very nature, is eternal. He could not die. 
that's why he needed to come in the robe of human flesh. That's why Jesus needed to be fully God and fully man. To be the perfect intercessor, he would have to die on behalf of others. Remember, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That's in the book of Ezekiel. But then if you look in the book of Genesis, uh, he said that the day you eat thereof, ye shall surely die. So the wages of sin is death. Uh, sin demanded the penalty of death. And so uh, human beings could not atone for sin even by their own death. Sin would still be in the world. You would still have the sin problem. It may, uh, you know, it, it may be the penalty for that person's sin, but it wouldn't atone for the world. The only way to atone for the world would be uh, for a sinless human being to die on behalf of all the world. And the only way for that to happen would be for God himself to do it. Because only by his uh, mediatorial work through Jesus Christ could the world have access into his presence. And so, uh, if you remember, I've talked about the tabernacle plan, and I've talked about the typology of Jesus Christ in the tabernacle plan, specifically that something that separated the Holy of Holies from, ev uh, from, from everything else was the veil of the temple. And uh, when Jesus died upon the cross, the veil was torn in, in uh, uh, was torn in two, all the way from the top to the bottom, showing us that it could not be the work of a man. And so, uh, the Bible tells us that the veil was his flesh. You can read that in the book of Hebrews. And so, what that means is, through his flesh and through the death of the flesh, we have access into the presence of the Father. It's very beautiful. Uh, the typology of the tabernacle plan is very, very beautiful. But that's what it means to, to say that uh, Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. He is the extension of God. And so to be at his right hand means he's in the position of power. Means also he's in the position of favor. Specifically, think about it this way. Jesus said... Uh, the time will come when the world is judged, and he says, I will say to those at my right hand, enter into glory, but I'll say to those at my left hand, depart from me, I never knew you. Now to us, that may not make a whole lot of sense, but what he means by that is, those on his right hand are those that have favor with God. Those on his left hand are the goats, those that did not obey God, and so they'll be cast into hell. So, the right hand also speaks of favor. And so, remember, what did God say at the baptism of Jesus? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So, to be at the right hand of God also means that he's in that position of favor. So, he's in the position of power and authority. He's also in the position of favor. And, as the right hand of God, he is the extension of the Father. And that's how he brought salvation into the world. And so that's what it means. Now, something else that's powerful is to sit down means that he completed the work. Let me uh, give you an example. When Jesus went in and taught in the synagogue, it, it was his turn, therefore, to read. He stood up and he read the scripture and it says, when he got through, he sat down. That mean, uh, meant that he had completed the reading of the scripture. And I don't have time to get into all of the specifics of this, but to sit down means that the work is completed. And so when Jesus sat down uh, at the right hand of the Father, that means he had completed his work. His mediatorial work 
was done. Now, his blood still speaks on our behalf. He still pleads our case, but he sat down, meaning the work was complete. It was done. He's at the position of, of power and favor, and uh, the work is complete. But it says that the Lord spoke and said, Sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies a foot, thy footstool. What does this mean? Okay, uh, God is going to judge the world. You can read about this in the book of Revelation. He's going to judge the world. He's going to pour out judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment upon the world. Uh, and then, when the judgment has been poured out upon the earth, Jesus Christ is going to come back. And he's going to come back, uh, but he's not going to be in the form of a humble servant. The first time he fashioned himself as a servant, uh, he took upon him the form of a servant, and he suffered on our behalf. But when he returns again, he's coming back as judge. That's why when he comes back, you read in the book of, uh, of uh, Revelation, it says he comes back with his garments dipped in blood, his eyes are aflame fire his mouth is as a sharp sword uh, he's going to come back in judgment and he's going to judge the world so he won't come back in that that uh, that weak and lowly form but he's going to come back as the judge and he's going to come back in wrath that's where uh, we're going to read about the you know of course the the battle of Armageddon you can read about that being fought uh, he's going to come back with ten thousands of his saints and uh, that's how he's going to judge the world so, when that work is complete and the enemies are made his footstool, he's going to return and he's going to judge uh, the world. And only those that are found in Christ Jesus, only those that have had the blood of Jesus applied to their life are going to be saved. Everybody else will be lost. So, this is what it means to say he's at the position of the right hand of God. does not mean that God has a literal right hand and Jesus is sitting at the right hand of uh, of the Father, and so you have that, you know, you've got one person, then you've got two persons. Remember, God is a spirit. And so, uh, to be sitting at the right hand of God just simply means he's sitting in that position of power and favor. Alright, hopefully this ex explains this to you, and uh, perhaps we'll get more in depth in this later. Thank you for listening.